0: well good evening clifford baptist church it's good to see you here i know you're there although you're not here in our sanctuary i have uh right now a good student section gwen is here tonight I'm glad Kenneth and Chad are here to get us streaming online tonight, get our sound together. So thank you for joining me tonight for this study. Uh, Kenneth told me just a moment ago that we had 17 or so sitting by ready to go. So thank you so much for this a little bit more informal uh, as we go through this study that we're enjoying walking through the entirety of the Bible and seeing the thread of truth ...that joins the Bible together. It is not simply a collection of disconnected stories and accounts of the people of God... ...but rather God is giving us a love letter with a beginning and with a flow and with an ending. And I'm glad that we're walking through His love letter in 30 to 32 lessons. Uh, Tonight is lesson number 11. And before I get started, let me remind you that if you would like to go to Clifford Baptist Church's website or to our Facebook page the study sheet is available there. It is simply a note sheet, tells you it is lesson number 11 uh, and the section we're in, and gives you space that you can take notes and keep your own notebook. But also tonight, and you might want to pick this up a little later after our study is done, but there's also a handout that has a picture of what the tabernacle of God looks like. We'll discuss that tonight. And also what the Holy of Holies looks like in that tabernacle, as well as the Ark of the Covenant uh, and what that means and what it stands for and we'll talk about that tonight but you'll have a picture or an artist's rendition of those two things that God gives to us and gave to the nation of Israel as they traveled in the wilderness. We'll cover all of that tonight but do know that that is available to you on our church website as well as our Facebook page. So as we get started let's start with a word of prayer. Our Lord our God thank you for your holy word Father, thank you that in this word is the road map of life. This word has no mistake in it. Uh, It is absolutely inerrant, and we thank you, Father, that it is your perfect word. We can believe every single word of it, Lord, and we thank you for the truth that it teaches us about how much you love us, that you are our creator, that you are our God, and you want to be our Savior through Jesus Christ. And so tonight, Lord, our pews are mostly empty, but I thank you for the students who are joining with me tonight as we study this section of your precious word, as it connects together. Uh, and as it's a, a complete flow of your word of God which teaches us your truth and shows us your plan for our lives and for the history of this earth and for the way that you're going to carry history through the entirety of eternity. So Lord bless us tonight as we join together in Bible study. we love you, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we sit together and we ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our leader, our guide and give us truth that we need in this day and in our days to come Father we just uh, open this study to you, and we give you the reins of control. I thank you, Lord, that you give me the opportunity to be the leader, but I pray through me, Lord, that you will be the teacher. We love you and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to go through lesson number 11. There's an, a, a section that we're covering right now. The section that we're covering is the Exodus and the Promised Land. And so as we start this lesson tonight, lesson number 11, let me give you a little backtrack of where we've been so all of us can start on the same page tonight, uh, especially working back into the last lesson, lesson number 10. Uh, If you remember, uh, Israel came to Egypt under Joseph's rule there. He was vice president of Egypt. a long course, look at lesson number 10, listen through lesson number 10 to find about a, about Joseph's life. It's an interesting life uh, in the history of God. But Joseph ends up as the vice president of Egypt, and because of his rulership there... He has the Pharaoh's permission to invite the entirety of his family to come live in Egypt under a royal lineage and uh, to be a privileged people as they live in Egypt. And that living there under those good conditions was about 400 years uh, for the people of Israel and for the family of Joseph. But... After that period, a ruler came, uh, a brand new ruler came to the throne of Egypt. Probably his name was Ramses uh, and another ruling people took over the rulership of uh, Egypt. And because it was a new ruler and a new people, they didn't know who Joseph was. They began to look at Israel living in their land of Egypt and they became very worried about and wary about Israel's presence in Egypt because Israel was continuing to grow. There were 2 million plus people living in Egypt and the ruler looked at them and said if they set their mind to do it, Israel could have an uprising and take over Egypt and take over the throne and take over the government if they set their minds to do it. They're numerous enough that they could rule our land. So we need to do something to control them, something to keep them from rising up. And so Israel became slaves to Egypt. They, they left their royal position and came to the position of being slaves. They were held as captives, and they were held as slaves in Egypt, and they were worked... Like animals, they were given backbreaking work to do in slavery in Egypt, and they lived in misery. So many years they lived in privilege, but so many years they lived in misery and backbreaking work. And they cry out to God and say, Oh God, please deliver us from this work that we are in and for this slavery that we're in, being captives here. And so God hears their cry. And he calls on a very unlikely man. His name is Moses. Moses was 80 years old. If you remember the story, go back into previous lessons. Uh, He grew up under privilege in Egypt, but he murdered a man in Egypt. And he had to run for his life. And he ends up back uh, in the the land that he came from. And he ends up as a shepherd, actually keeping his father-in-law's sheep. 80 years old, looking to retirement, has no worries really. He's just taking care of the sheep and they really belong to somebody else. So he really had a good life in that he was doing uh, just very menial work there keeping sheep. But God calls him. And God says through the burning bush, if you remember that experience, God calls Moses to go to the Israelites and to come into the presence of Pharaoh and to say a very famous statement before him, Let my people go. And, of course, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He does not want to hear God's word for Israel to be released from their captivity in Egypt. He can't let them go. They are a cheap labor force, and he needs their work. He needs their presence there, so he does not want them to leave. And in response to that hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God sends ten plagues upon Egypt. And in the first nine plagues... After each one of those plagues, although they were difficult for Egypt and and affected the food chain of Egypt and affected the way the people were living there, Pharaoh always hardened his heart and always denied freedom to God's people so that they could leave Egypt. Pharaoh over and over, nine plagues, had denied them freedom. But then comes the final plague, plague number 10, the death of of the firstborn males of both the human population and the animal population of Egypt. And except for the homes that were marked by the blood of the lamb, if you remember in that first institution of the Passover, God says, take a lamb, slaughter it, kill it, paint the lintel and the doorposts of your home with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and when the death angel comes through and sees the blood, he will pass over you in death. And so the Passover is established. Now let me ask you, before we move on, let me ask you a hypothetical question. This is one of those questions I would love to throw out to a congregation and get what you think about this. But let me give you my opinion since no one is here. A hypothetical question. If an Egyptian had come to true faith and true belief in God and God's promise, and if an Egyptian heard God's promise and took a lamb and killed that sacrificial lamb, and that Egyptian painted the doorpost and the lintel of his home with the blood of the lamb, would the death angel have passed over the Egyptian home as well as the Israelite home? My answer to that, what I believe to be true here, knowing the character and knowing the grace of God is yes indeed, if it was an act of true faith for an Egyptian an act of true trust that an Egyptian had placed their life in God's hands, then yes, indeed, God would have passed over that home, not because of who it was, but because of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintel of that home. It is a statement of God's character. It's a thread that carries through the Bible. Whoever in Egypt would have placed their faith and their trust in the God of the universe and put the, the sacrificial blood of the Lamb on their home, God would have passed over death from that home. That thread carries through the entirety of the Bible, coming to Jesus, whoever, whatever nation they come from, whatever color they are, whoever places their faith and their belief in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior, and as the blood shed for them on the old rugged cross, they will be passed over in death. There's a thread that ties from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Exodus to uh, the Gospels and on through all of the New Testament, that God will pass over whomever trusts the blood of the Lamb shed for him or for her. Well, we move on in that. Pharaoh loses his own son in this tenth plague in Egypt. And the Pharaoh is devastated. And he summons Moses and his brother Aaron to come before him. And he tells them, because he has lost his son, because the death angel has come through his home. He tells Moses and Aaron, take your people. Take your animals Take your belongings, take everything you have, and get out of my land. I don't want you here. Get out. Take everything you have and go. And so the Israelites are given permission, not just given permission, but pushed out of the land of Egypt uh, as they could leave after this tenth plague. If you remember, the Israelites do leave Egypt, and it is uh, an act of faith. As they leave, they had been there 400 years as slaves in captivity. So they had lived there for centuries in freedom, but they'd also lived there in centuries as slaves. But as they are leaving Egypt, it's a leaving of faith because God is going to lead them through a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night they didn't necessarily know exactly where they were going I'm not sure that Moses himself even had a road map as to where they were going he simply was given the instruction of God follow me in the day follow the cloud in the night follow the fire and I will lead you where I want you to be It's a following of faith. They didn't know exactly where they were going. They just knew that they were to follow God. Friend, let me ask you this. Do you know exactly where you're going tomorrow? Do you know everything that's going to happen in your future? Neither do I. It is a following of faith, and we're to put our trust in the living Lord, and He's going to set the steps before us. And though we might know every time where we're going, we know that we can trust the one who's setting the steps that we are to follow. But not long after the Israelites leave Egypt, Pharaoh has a change of mind. Pharaoh has a change of heart. He begins to regret that he's let all of this labor force go. And so he decides that he's going to bring them back into Egypt. He had let them go because he would lost his son and because Egypt had lost their firstborn. But after he thought about it, he realized that he didn't want them to go. And so he wanted to bring them back. So look at Exodus chapter 14. We're going to begin our study tonight. In Exodus 14, look at verse 5. And this is the word of God. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot chariot, and took his people with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with an high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Pihiroth before Baal-Zephon. So we see that the people of God, have left Egypt. However, as they have left the borders of Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind, he pulls in his army, he pulls together his chariots and his horses, and he goes to bring them back into Egypt after that change of heart. Now, before we move on, let me point out a truth of Scripture here. If you look at verse 8 again, you'll notice that it says, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That's a statement that has confused many people over the years. Did God harden the heart of Pharaoh? Did God himself actually become the author of Pharaoh's evil heart? And actually that is not the case at all. God did not change Pharaoh's heart to become evil. The Bible teaches us that God is not the author of evil. God didn't change Pharaoh's heart to become evil. Rather, God brought out what was already in the heart of Pharaoh. As you drop a bucket in the well, you bring out whatever is in the well. In the same way, God brought out what already existed in Pharaoh's evil heart. Here's the analogy that I want you to understand about this hardness of heart and God hardening his heart. The analogy is a dish rag. When you take a, a wet dish rag and you twist it and you harden it, and you wring out the water of that dish rag, you're bringing out whatever that dish rag is holding. In the same way, God wrung out Pharaoh's heart to bring out what was already there. So when the Bible says God hardened his heart, it didn't mean that God was the author of his evil. It means that he wrung out his heart to bring out what was already there. And although Pharaoh had lost a son, the evil came out of his heart. And he was going to go after and overtake and return this slave labor of the Israelites in his country. So the Egyptian army is pursuing the Israelites. And as the Egyptians get close to Israel, the Bible teaches us that the Israelites were in a a no-win situation. They got hemmed in on the banks of the Red Sea they couldn't turn to the right or to the left they certainly couldn't go forward because the water was before them and pharaoh's army is is approaching from the rear and so they have nowhere to go here they are trapped and they panic and basically they say we're all going to die we're trapped here uh, at the edge of the sea here comes the army after us there is no escape we're going to all lose our lives and so they start shouting at Moses and Aaron, their godly leaders, and they they shout at them that they had made the wrong decision, that they led them to a dead end, and everybody was going to die at this at this place at the edge of the Red Sea. And so Moses and Aaron were first lifted up as the deliverers of Israel out of Egypt, but e- but Israel turned their hearts and began to criticize them because they'd led them to this dead end. Here's what they're saying. Look at Exodus chapter 14. Look at verses 10 through 12. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we might serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness." So all of the people of Israel are criticizing Moses and his brother Aaron. They they led them to this place. And they said, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt, we would rather be in slavery. We would rather be in captivity than for you to have led us to this dead end. And they're under great criticism. Now... It's amazing to me that, that, the, that the Israelites are saying, we would have rather withstood the beatings and the labor and the slavery than to have listened to you to follow this plan of God. Just amazing. So Moses speaks these words to the Israelites as they're here trapped by the sea. Here's the word of Moses to them. Look again, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. So Moses stands up against all of the criticism. And he speaks to the household of Israel And he lets them know that God has a plan, and they're in the right place as they follow his plan. So he tells all of Israel to hush, be quiet, stand still, and let the Lord fight this battle. Well, you know, as I look at this scene, I have to look at it as a leader of the people of God. Moses was a leader of the people of God. I've served in that capacity under God's grace, and by your blessing, you've allowed me to be the leader or part of the leadership team of Clifford Baptist Church. Sometimes as a leader, you need to stand up and maintain your faith and maintain the course that you know is the godly course. Sometimes the situations come by that you cannot back down on God's word and God's plan because as a godly leader, you know it's the truth, you know it is right, you know it is his way, and there is no backing down, there is no compromise, there is no turning back. It's not always easy. I cannot imagine what Moses faced when all of these Israelites, remember two million of them criticizing him at the side of the sea. But he stands up and he says all of you hush be quiet stand still quit your criticism and let God fight this battle. He took the stand when everybody else was against him and that's important for us to see he was a godly leader. He basically said quit your whining and let God do what God is going to do. And on God's command Moses raises up his hand. You'll notice this in chapter 14, verse 21. A lot of people think that Moses raised up the rod of his leadership. But Scripture says he raised his hand over the sea. And the Lord sends a mighty wind that blows all night long. And that wind centrally parts that sea from side to side not only does that wind build up walls of water to the side but it dries the pathway for the Israelites to walk through and the Israelites can walk safely through those walls of water all night long Israel 2 million Israelites are walking through the Red Sea and by those walls of water on dry land as they get to the other side progressing into the promised land now now here's something that you don't often think about and I want to raise it for your attention Uh, you remember the old movie of the Ten Commandments now I want to remind you that that movie is not that old it was released two days after I was born October 5th 1956 it's not that old but it is an older movie Uh, but in that movie of course The Ten Commandments, uh, Charlton Heston as Moses, and the scene has the Israelites going across the Red Sea. If you remember that scene, and I remember it well, I've seen it probably a dozen times over my life, the Israelites are just straggling across, and the children are playing across, and the wagons are being pulled through, but it just seems like the Israelites are straggling through, making their way, going across the Red Sea, getting to the other side. But that's really not accurate. It's not realistic. Remember that 2 million people crossed over the Red Sea overnight. Those are multitudes of people and a few hours to get them across the Red Sea. It had to be orderly, it had to be uh, in ranks, in in formation, so that the older people and the children did not get trampled in all of this traveling. In fact, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 18, it says that, that the people went up harnessed. That means they went up in a very, very orderly, filing fashion. So listen, this is amazing. Somebody figured this out. I didn't figure this out on my own, but I did read it, and I did keep the note. In order for two million Israelites to get across the Red Sea in one night, the passageway would have had to have been three miles wide, and the Israelites would have to march across in horizontal lines of 5,000 people, shoulder to shoulder, rank after rank, in order to get across the Red Sea in that number of hours, let's say 12 hours. It would take that kind of order in order to get all of the Israelites across the Red Sea in those few hours. Two million people you can't straggle across. It has to be a very orderly crossing. I think that's very amazing that 5,000 people abreast are going across the Red Sea, line after line, getting to the other side. Now, as the last of the Israelites do clear the shore on the other side, God tells Moses to lift up his hand once again. And in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 26, it says that all the Egyptian chariots and all the soldiers and the horses are now charging through that dry riverbed, that dry ocean bed of the Red Sea. And when Moses lifts up his hand, the walls of water crash in, close in, and all of the soldiers and all of the horses lose their lives. The chariots are covered up and gone under the sea. And Israel then rejoices. It's amazing, and remember just uh, the night before, here they are criticizing Moses and Aaron, saying, we wish you'd never brought us here. And now, after they've gotten to the other side and God has brought about a victory, they rejoice. I want you to look with me to Exodus chapter 14, look at verses 30 and 31. This is the word of the Lord here. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So their attitude changed toward God, but also their attitude changed toward Moses. Moses took his stand as he he should have done as a godly leader, and the people realized that his leadership was strong and right and good, and they turned their eyes back to him. Well, we move now to a very important step in the thread of the Bible. We get to the point where we know Israel is in the wilderness and they're looking for the leadership of God and in this process of God leading them, He gives them the Ten Commandments. And as you know, those are amazing laws and truths of God that we carry to this day. Beginning with chapter 16, Israel's in the wilderness. Their faith, and uh, their, their, their uh, confidence in God is built up and strong, but in chapter 16, it's like a yo-yo. It falters once again. Look at chapter 16 of Exodus, verses 1 through 3. It's amazing how these people go from, from unbelief to faith, back to unbelief again. So, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. And they took their journey from Elam, And all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is an area, a capital S-I-N, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here we have them. They're leaving Egypt. They turn against Moses, and they say, You're going to have us killed by the side of the sea. God delivers them. They get farther into the wilderness, and now they're hungry. And they say, Oh, now if we could just go back to Egypt where we could eat meat and where we had plenty of bread and plenty of food. And Moses and God has led us out here. Now we're going to die of hunger. So once again, the yo-yo of their faith goes from the high point to the low point. They're criticizing God. They're criticizing Moses again. So, while Moses and Aaron are in this state of wandering with the Israelites, God gives them commandments. They're not suggestions. They're not options. They are commandments. These are the basic ground rules of life. Not just life in the Old Testament. Not just life 3,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago. These are rules and Statements of God's never-changing truth that we need today. These are the basic ground rules of life. They do not change. They are never to be watered down. Uh, They are a set of basic moral and ethical codes from God Almighty. Now, let me point out something that often we overlook. You know, when we think about the Ten Commandments, maybe our mind goes back to the old Ten Commandments movie of 1956 where we see God writing the commandments on tablets of stone. But when God first gave the commandments to Israel, He did not give them to Israel on stone. But rather, He spoke the commandments for Israel to hear. Uh, Look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 20. Exodus 19, verse 20. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. So God calls Moses up on Sinai for a meeting. But after Moses meets with God, he comes back down to deliver God's word to the Israelites. At the beginning of chapter 20, We hear God speak the Ten Commandments to all the people of Israel. They were not on tablets. God spoke them with His very voice for Moses and Aaron and all of the people of Israel to hear God's spoken word. The Israelites, hearing the voice of God, are overwhelmed by His presence and overwhelmed by His voice. By the way, I remind you, I believe any time that we hear the voice of God In the Bible, we're hearing the voice of Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 1, is called the Word. He's the Word, the spoken Word of God. I believe in the Garden of Eden, when it says that the voice of God is walking in the Garden, it's Jesus. Pre-incarnate, before He comes to Bethlehem. But I believe when Israel hears the voice of God, the thundering voice of God giving the Ten Commandments, it is the voice of Jesus the one voice that we hear as we read the Bible. But as the voice of God speaks the law of God, including the Ten Commandments, He gives Moses and the people various laws regarding uh, idols. Uh, The Israelites are so uh, overwhelmed at the presence... That in Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, Moses goes back up on the mountain to receive these additional words from God. He goes into a very thick darkness where he meets with God. He, he leaves the visual sight of the people of Israel as he ascends the mountain. He goes into a darkness, perhaps into a cloud of God's presence. But the Israelites lose sight of him. But then God gives Moses various laws outside of the Ten Commandments in addition to the Ten Commandments. He gives Moses laws about uh, the, the, uh, the, regarding idols and the worship of idols in Israel. He gives Moses words about the proper treatment of servants and about murder and about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that law, by the way, in Hebrew is called lex talianus, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. He gives Moses words about ethics and about the feasts that Israel is to celebrate. And Moses, on that mountain, sacrifices to God and meets with God to, re- to receive instruction in these laws and uh, in these directions of God. But also, he gets some building instructions. While Moses is with God on the mountain, God instructs him how to build the tabernacle, how to build the Ark of the Covenant now, that's the item that goes into the tabernacle set, about, set apart for the priests. So, at the end of the meeting, and we'll get a little bit more about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in just a minute. But at the end of the meeting, in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, God then gives Moses the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. So God first speaks the Ten Commandments for all of Israel to hear. Moses goes up on the mountain. He disappears from their sight. And in the midst of all of God's word given to him, including some building plans, God also gives Moses the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone with his very finger. Now, as we think about the Ten Commandments, they set God's high standard for all people. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to say, if you keep all ten of these, you're going to live eternally. Uh, If you live all ten of these Ten Commandments perfectly, you'll be good. But rather, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show us how far we fall short of the glory of God. How far we fall short of living His perfect Word on our own strength day by day. The Ten Commandments prove to us that we cannot live by the standard and perfection and righteousness of God on our own strength. It cannot be done, and that's exactly why God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. That's why they continue to exist today, to show us God's righteousness and that we need His help and His forgiveness in order to live His law. So the Ten Commandments, in essence, really show us how much we need Him and how much we need His presence and His forgiveness in our life. Now, immersed in these meetings with God, Moses receives instruction about building a tabernacle. Well, what is a tabernacle? Again, if you go to the website or the Facebook page, you will see a picture, an artist rendition of what a, a, a tabernacle looks like, and you can download that. You can print it out. But what is a tabernacle? It is the temporary, and I do stress temporary, it's the temporary traveling home Where God is going to dwell as a worship center, as Israel is wandering and traveling through the wilderness, going toward the promised land, the tabernacle is a movable church, so to speak. The tabernacle is the movable presence of God as God is housed in the tabernacle. And also, as a part of the tabernacle, we see that uh, the tabernacle is going to contain some very precious articles. But in this mobile, movable structure in which they are going to worship God, God is very specific about the building of it and the content of it. Uh, In a great sign of God's presence, He gives instructions about building the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is an article that will be kept inside that movable tent, that movable structure of the tabernacle. What is the Ark of the Covenant? It's a very, very important article for the nation of Israel. Look at Exodus chapter 25. Turn on over to chapter 25. And we'll see about the Ark of the Covenant. Look at verses 10 through 16. These are the building plans for this precious box that's going to have the representation of God's presence for the nation of Israel. So, Exodus 25, go to verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height Thereof, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. Thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. So the ark is a box. It's simply a box. It has rings on the side of it in which wooden rods will be passed through those rings. So they never touch the box itself, but they only carry the box by those wooden staves. Everything is overlaid with gold. It's a precious box Uh, And it contains articles that signify to Israel God's presence. The simple fact that they have the Ark of the Covenant inside of the tabernacle of God is God's proof to them that He is with them, that He is working and living with them. Uh, The box itself, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, is somewhere roughly around 4 feet by 2.5 by 2.5 as a rectangular box. But what was contained in the ark? The Lord tells us right here that there are going to be some specific articles that God will put have Israel put into the box as symbols of his presence. Well, actually, the book of Hebrews tells us what those articles are. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it says, In that ark of the covenant that precious box of God's presence would be a golden pot of the manna of God remember that's the food of God that he fed to Israel when they were hungry they would gather manna through every day and it would serve them through the day Uh, the manna that he gave to them uh, would keep them from being hungry so there would be a golden pot of manna from God there would be Aaron's rod of priestly authority kept in that golden box of the ark of the covenant and also the tables of those ten commandments given to Moses written by the finger of God. The ark was a very holy reminder of the presence and the power and the provision of God. But in the tabernacle with the placement of the ark, what separated the holy ark from the rest of the tabernacle and the outside uh, of the entryway in the courtyard of the tabernacle, what separated the holiness of the ark and the holiness of God from the people? In the tabernacle, separating the ark from the sight of all the people was a very heavy veil or a very heavy curtain, a very thick, curtain in Exodus chapter 40 verse 3 you can read about that veil being there why is that an important symbol it reminds us that people are sinful all of us are sinful and none of us can righteously stand and look upon the holiness of God Sin separates us from God. The curtain separated Israel from the Ark of the Covenant. No one could look at that Ark because it's, it symbolized the complete and the perfect righteousness of God. And the people could not look upon it because of their sin, because of their separation. God is too pure for us to look upon. And so the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, was separated from the eyes of the people by that very thick veil, that very thick curtain. Once a year, a priest of God, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies where this ark is and offer an atonement of sin. No one else could go in. Only the high priest of Israel could walk into, through the veil, going into the Holy of Holies, and to that ark to, to, give, uh, to, to give sacrifice, to atone for the sin of the people. In fact, it was so holy that if the high priest got in there and something went wrong, and even the high priest died, they tied a rope to his ankle, so that if something happened to him, rather than go in to get him in the presence of God, they would drag him out, but they could not go in. That's how holy the ark of the covenant was. The Jewish people, of course, still recognize the holiness of God. And they still recognize this one day of the year that the high priest goes in to make atonement for the people. It is called Yom Kippur. And it is one of the high holy days of the Jewish faith. Well, let me ask you this. Why don't we celebrate this day of reflection? This day of... That we recognize our sin. We recognize that we need to repent before God. Why is it that we don't have a human high priest to go into a holy of holies and atone for our sin? There's a reason. We do not need an earthly high priest anymore to go into the presence of God to atone for our sin. To be our presence before the Lord. We don't need a high priest to make a sacrifice for us as the Jews did in this day. Because today, Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the one who he himself gave the final sacrifice. He gave himself to the old rugged cross that we might be forgiven, that we might be saved, that we might boldly, through him as our Savior, be able to come into the presence of God because we have been made righteous. We have been forgiven. We have been made pure. Not by our own actions, but by the blood of Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Write down these references Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. And that New Testament book of Hebrews, it spells out that we no longer need any earthly high priest because Jesus Christ himself is our high priest. He gave himself as the final sacrifice. And that high priest of Jesus Christ eliminates the need for any other sacrifice. That's why, to this day, we don't sacrifice lambs anymore as Israel did. We don't have the recognition that we have to paint the doorpost and the lintel of our homes with the blood of a lamb because our hearts have been painted with the blood of Jesus. He shed his blood that we might be forgiven, that we might be saved. And the Bible is very plain to say without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and it is by the blood of Jesus, it is by the blood of the high priest himself That we have been forgiven. That's the thread I want you to understand that ties these words that we're studying right now. As the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and before the Ark of the Covenant, and and he makes atonement for the nation of Israel, that thread ties through. And that the high priest now, as we see it in Exodus, the high priest now of the New Testament is Jesus Christ the New Testament, the new covenant that comes through him because he himself, the high priest, is also the Lamb of God who gave himself that we might be forgiven. The Bible is an amazing account of God's love for us and he ties it together as we see the blood of the Lamb in the Old Testament with the blood of the Son in the New Testament. So as we end tonight, here's where we end our study in the book of Exodus. God has provided a mobile tabernacle for the nation of Israel as they travel through the wilderness they're going to carry uh, the tabernacle of God representing the presence of God with them as they come to an encampment they will set up that holy tent uh, with an entrance way and the holy of holies and the curtain in the middle and the precious items of God especially the ark of the covenant in the midst of that tabernacle they're going to have a house of worship And as they travel, they're headed toward the land that God promised to them. So this is a traveling, a movement of the people of Israel, and it is a movement of faith as they're going to the land that God promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the family of Israel. So that's where we end tonight as we leave Israel in the midst of the wilderness, traveling with the tabernacle striving to follow after Moses having their ups and their downs their moments of faith their moments of doubt and that's where we are going to leave Israel tonight in lesson number 11 and that's where we pick up next week next week if you would like to uh, read ahead a bit in lesson number 12 we are going to enter into the book of numbers Uh, some of these books we don't read very often Uh, we sort of gravitate toward the New Testament but next week we're going to be looking into the book of Numbers if you'd like to read some of the opening chapters of Numbers read ahead a bit that's where we'll start next week God bless you so glad that we could have class together tonight and as we end we know God is going to bless us through these days that we're separated but But praise God that we still have this connection, that we study His word, and that we bow before Him as His people. And we remember again, the church in these days is still absolutely the church. We still are to be ministers. We're still to be servants. Yes, our activities have been uh, redirected and restricted in so many ways. But whenever we have the opportunity, always be that witness for the living Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts homes as well as when we do venture out into the public we're going to be that representative and that witness for him let's pray together our father our god tonight thank you that we meet together under your grace under your blessing father tonight as we study uh the nation of israel going through the wilderness lord it amazes me that we see their confidence in god and then they lose confidence in god and in his leader and then they regain it then they lose it again it seems to be kind of a yo-yo effect of their faith father Sometimes I think we criticize Israel and yet we, we also know that we're challenged to always keep our eyes on you. And when we come to that moment of doubt to look to you and to see the ways that you reinvigorate us and renew us in your love and in your grace, may we always keep our eyes on you. We thank you, Father, that in a day long ago we're studying the high priest going to atone for the sin of Israel with an animal sacrifice. But that holds hands with the New Testament because now the high priest is not a human being. Uh, It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And He Himself is the Lamb of God as well as our High Priest and the one through whom we come for salvation. So tonight, Lord, thank You for blessing us with connecting Your Word together. Bless us as we continue to walk through it. We love You. We thank You. We trust You. And we know, Lord, that You're going to lead us through these days as we continue to be Your church and as we continue to carry Your good news into this world. Father, bless us, we pray. Thank You for this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.